Well, good morning. I just want to welcome all of you again to St. Peter's Fireside. We are really glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, This is week number two of a four-week series called Marked by Charcoal. And as I mentioned earlier in the series, we're looking at scenes from the life of Peter uh, because Peter, he had these two fireside uh, experiences in the Gospels. At the first fireside, uh, he denied knowing Jesus and he denied him three times and he was marked by that story. It was a story of failure. But then Jesus meets him at another fireside after the resurrection. And we know that Jesus is recreating this moment because in John's gospel, we're told that the first fireside was at a charcoal fire. And now the second one's at a charcoal fire. Peter denied Jesus three times. And now Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? And the second fireside scene, uh, the relationship is restored. Jesus reminds Peter that he is not so far gone that God's grace can't meet him there. And so what we're doing in this series is asking, what was Peter's like life, life like after this experience at the fireside? What was his life like after he encountered grace? And so last week we looked at Acts chapter 3 and we saw uh, that Peter, going out into the world from that scene, understood that Jesus was the center of everything. Jesus was the center of the world's history. He is the center of what God is doing in the world. And he was the center of Peter's life. And as a result, uh, Peter saw that Jesus was all that he could offer to the world. And so this week, we get to look at Acts 4 of how Peter kept Jesus at the center. And how the Holy Spirit was working through Peter for that ability to keep Jesus at the center. And for some of us, this might seem basic, but I just want to really quickly give us a quick sketch of who the Holy Spirit is. As Christians, we believe in uh, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one but three. It's very mysterious. You can look into that later. The Spirit is being the third person of the Trinity, and he is sent by the Father and by Jesus for the church. He is the way by which Jesus is still present and active and working in the world. And so this week, we get to look at how the Holy Spirit is behind Peter's character development, how he's behind uh, Peter's witness in the world, how he's the power in Peter's life. And so we're going to walk through this scene in Acts 4, and first, uh, we'll walk through the trial. And like any trial, it it has all the components. You know, there's the um, prosecution, there's the defense, there's the deliberation, there's the verdict. And as we look at all these components, we'll see how the Holy Spirit is working through Peter's life. And then after that, we'll look at the implications then for us. What does that tell us about our lives, about our presence in the world? So if you would keep your Bible handy, if you would keep your service sheets out, follow along with me in Acts chapter 4. And first, let's set the stage for the trial. So Acts 3, we see Peter, uh, that Jesus through Peter healed a disabled beggar. And it was miraculous and it was powerful and it was just a beautiful story. And Acts chapter 4 is the continuation of that story. It flows out of that story. That, uh, verse 1 tells us that Peter and John are arrested. And they're taken into custody because of this healing, because of the attention uh, that it drew. And then in verse 2, we're told that the people who arrested them are greatly annoyed. And uh, the Greek for this word is actually conveys an intense agitation. We have to ask, why were they so agitated with Peter and John? And it was because the apostles were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, why this was so agitating has a great deal to do with who made up this group of leaders. And so if we look at them, we have religious elites, we have political elites, we have people with influence. 
And they're unified in their agitation, but that's about the only thing they share in common. They held different beliefs about the resurrection. In that group, you have from, some from the Pharisaic party uh, who said, you know, the resurrection, yeah, we believe in that, but it will only happen at the end of time for all people. But then on the other hand, you had Sadducees among them who said there's no such thing as the resurrection. There's no such thing as the afterlife. But the one thing, aside from their agitation, that they could agree with is that the resurrection certainly didn't happen within history as the apostles were proclaiming. And as we look at these leaders, it's really easy to pass over the names that are listed. Verse 5, Annas the high priest and Caiaphas of the high priestly family. If these names uh, ring a bell, you get a gold star in Bible trivia. Both of these men were present at Jesus' trial and likely present at his crucifixion. And so now Peter is facing the people who tried Jesus. And remember, the trial of Jesus is a devastating moment in the life of Peter. Not just because it led to uh, Christ's crucifixion, because that, as heartbreaking as it was, Peter had to look at that and say, I also denied him at the trial. I played my part in his death. Because from a distance, Peter watched Jesus' trial unfold, and he had his own mini-trial where he was questioned three times, and he denied knowing Jesus. That was the first fireside scene, and, and he was marked by failure there. And now, he's on trial to defend Jesus again. And he's got a poor track record. And in a way, this is... Uh, this is just like a great rematch. You know, think about in the realm of sports. Think about the Oilers versus the Islanders in the Gretzky era, right? 1983, the Oilers go through the whole Stanley Cup Finals, only losing one game before they get to the final match against the Islanders, and then they get sweeped four games to nothing. It was brutal. I was two years old. I totally remember it. And then <clears throat> 1984, Oilers versus Islanders again, and the Oilers win. You know, think about the realm of movies, Rocky, right? And I'm just going to give you a heads up. I'm going to spoil the movie for any of you who haven't seen Rocky. Rocky versus Apollo Creed in Rocky 1. 15 rounds of boxing. Rocky learns how to fight with his other hand. Like, it's just an amazing movie. And then Rocky loses, and that's the end of the movie. It's very anticlimactic. Rocky 2, though, the rematch. You know, Apollo Creed versus Rocky, and this time Rocky wins. Think about the realm of food. Uh, in 2012, I took on an Indian buffet. It won. I am definitely not up for the rematch. You see, Peter's trial, like any good rematch, it has a background story. It has escalating tension, but there's so much more at stake. This is not just about a trophy or a victory. He's facing the people who had orchestrated Jesus' death. He's facing people who could have him killed. So let's get into this trial. It begins with the prosecution. Look at verse 7. The leaders ask Peter and John, by what power or what name did you do this? By what power or what name did you do this? You gotta think John is looking at Peter like, is he gonna leave me stranded here? Like, is he just gonna hightail is he just going to cower again? And what's remarkable is that Peter's defense is completely unlike his denial of Jesus at that first fireside. Peter acts like an entirely different person. And Luke, who wrote the history that's in the book of Acts, wants to make something very clear in verse 8, that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
that everything that's about to transpire, that Peter's words, his witness, his character, this is all a working of God, the Holy Spirit, in and through Peter. And I'm convinced that even in that moment, Peter understood what was happening as fulfillment of what Jesus had promised to him. In Luke chapter 12, verses 8 through 12, Jesus tells his disciples, including Peter, not to worry when you get dragged into trials. Not to worry when people accuse you. Because in the hour, you don't have to plan your words because the Holy Spirit will give you the words. It's the Holy Spirit defense mechanism. God promises to work through his people to defend the gospel. In times of suffering and persecution, God promises that he will be there regardless of the outcome. Life or death, that God will be present with those who trust in him in those situations. God will show up. And now Peter is on trial and he's experiencing this promise firsthand. And so he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he defends the gospel. He doesn't shrink back in fear. And I think we can all recognize like this is an amazing moment of reversal in Peter's life. Before denying Jesus, a few episodes earlier in the gospel, Peter says, I will never deny you. Jesus, I would die for you. And we got to give Peter the benefit of the doubt here. I think, I think Peter really meant that. And at least, he, the very least, he hoped that to be true of himself. But as we know, he denied Jesus. He, he got caught up in self-preservation. He, he did the very thing he thought he would never do. And now we see the Holy Spirit filling him in, in such a way that he can become someone that he was never capable of becoming by his own effort alone. That he can be the person he dreamed of. He can do the things for Jesus that he hoped to do through the power of the Spirit. That's just, to me, it's just such a powerful and beautiful moment in Peter's life. He's no longer focused on himself. He's no longer caught up with self-preservation. He's all about God's glory. Luke really wants to point this out. And as the story progresses, we'll see that Peter wants to point this out. That this is not about Peter. This is about God. Can you think of a time when something happened to someone, right? And they're, they're glowing afterwards. You know, it could be pregnancy after that first trimester, right? Like once the bad part's gone, the, 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 there's that pregnancy glow, right? Like they're just glowing. It could be someone, you know, they went on a date Friday night and you see them on the next day and they're, they're just elated. They're so excited. Or, or it could be, you know, a raise. Um, you know, if, if I'm ever glowing, you know, right? Like I went to Chipotle, um, it's two food jokes in one sermon, the end. What we, what we know, though, from, re, from our own experience is that when a change takes place in someone, a change that matters, it has a noticeable effect. We can see it. And the change within Peter, it was noticeable. He was marked by a noticeable boldness. Look at verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized they had been with Jesus. This unusual boldness astonishes the educated elite men. This boldness of common, uneducated men. They can't wrap their heads around it. And Luke wants to point out that when they perceived this boldness, they recognized that Peter and John had been with Jesus. And maybe, I mean, maybe it's face, facial recognition, right? They they see them like, oh, I remember seeing these guys at, at, at one of the teaching moments at the temple with Jesus. But 
What I think it is, is that the boldness they encounter in John and Peter resembles the boldness they encountered in Christ, that they're actually seeing Jesus in them. And that makes sense because the spirit that was in Jesus through the Holy Spirit is in Peter and John. And so when they look to Peter and John, they're saying, you guys are acting like Jesus. I I see him in you. It's noticeable. It's a boldness. And they don't like it. And they don't like it because this spirit-empowered boldness is challenging. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, he calls the Spirit the Spirit of truth. And that when he'll send the Spirit, he will bear witness about Jesus. And then Jesus says, and you will also bear witness about me. The Spirit, through God's people, will bear witness to the truth. And as all of us know, the truth isn't always a comfortable thing. It's often a challenging thing. So let's look at the Holy Spirit's defense through Peter then. Verses 8 through 12. Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is just epic truth bomb of spirit speaking through Peter. I mean, first Peter is, he's unashamed. He's, he's unflinching in testifying that it was the name of Jesus that healed this man and that Jesus was crucified by these leaders and that he rose from the dead. And you have to think, Peter was not unaware of the people he was talking to. He was not unaware that they very much disagreed with his views about the resurrection. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he can't help but testify to the truth of what he witnessed, that God has acted within history and has resurrected his son. This is a boldness and a challenge that can only come through the Spirit. There's a second component to his speech, and it's, it's the controversial bit for the original audience and for us. Verse 12, there's salvation in no one else, for there's no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the challenge of Peter's defense, isn't it? No one else? Like only Jesus, the Jesus you rejected? I think it's challenging for the original audience because... They understood that salvation was an act of their God, an act of Yahweh. And now Peter is saying that salvation is an act of Jesus. He's essentially equating Jesus to be equal with the one true God. And furthermore, they, despite their conflicting religious views, they would have agreed that righteousness and salvation was found through the commandments of God given to Moses and expounded upon through the prophets But that salvation and obeying God and righteousness, that certainly wasn't found through one man named Jesus. Certainly not the man they had recently crucified for being a blasphemer. This is a challenge. But most of all, it was offensive. Peter says in verse 11, This Jesus is the stone rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. Peter boldly tells the leaders, you're opposing God. It's challenging and it's offensive, but for us, 
It's also challenging and offensive, isn't it? Can we accept that Jesus is the only way that we can be saved? Let that sink in for a second. Jesus is the only way. Think about how that comment just stands in such contrast to what our culture tells us. People like to say, look, Christians, the world has moved along 2,000 years. We are much more modern people now. So can you just temper in your beliefs? Because there's a lot, we live in a pluralist society. There's a lot of values in religions and they are all equal and valid and you can have yours within that. But to push your beliefs upon someone, to make universal claims like this, it's intolerant. Just don't push your beliefs on people. Surely you've heard this. And so I want to actually dig into what culture is telling us there. You know, the statement that all religions are equally valid. I would say there's no way to believe that Jesus is just the same as any other religion. There's no way. He says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. He says, um, before Abraham was, I am, which to a Jewish uh, mindset, he's, he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be preexistent. He says things like, this is my blood which was shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Like his, his claims, they're just astounding and they're unrivaled among other religions. And in these claims, Jesus was either right or he was wrong. But either way, he's not the same as other religions. That's the challenging part. If he's wrong, he made claims to be God, to be the son of God. He made claims that salvation was found only through him. And so if he was wrong, he's actually misleading people. So among the religions of the world, he's actually worse. But if he's right, that sets him apart from every other religion. Because he's, if these claims are true, then how could he be like any other religion? So right or wrong, we see he can't be lumped in with the other religions. And then there's the issue of, of exclusive claims. People don't like us saying that we know what's absolutely true. But everybody makes exclusive claims. Atheists make exclusive claims. Buddhists make exclusive claims. Uh, people who say religions are all the same are making exclusive claims. People who say don't push your beliefs on me are making exclusive claims. You might be thinking, well, how? How is that true? Think about people who say all religions are equally valid. That excludes one religion from being distinct and universally true. It's exclusive. Think about someone who says, don't push your beliefs on somebody. What they are actually doing is saying, I want you to believe that you shouldn't push your beliefs on someone. They're doing the very thing they're telling you not to do. It's an exclusive claim, and their, their claim is actually contradictory. So here's the thing. If Jesus is really who he said he is, then of course, salvation can only be found through him. And that's challenging to us because his claims, they're huge and they're exclusive, and if they're true, the implications just alter the entire fabric of, of the universe and our understanding of the world. And I get, like, some of you might really be struggling with these, these claims, and if you've got questions, you know, come talk to me, shoot me an email. But I think it's not just the exclusivity of Christ's claim to be the only way that bothers us. I think there's something else that offends us. What offends us is that the implication is that we have to be saved. If we take seriously Luke's witness to this event, it's not Peter, really, who's talking. I mean, God's using him. It's, 
It's God speaking through Peter, through the Holy Spirit, and saying, you have to be saved. God is telling us, we have to be saved. And that's what offends us. And we'll unpack that in a moment. Uh, But let's get back to the trial. Um, It's moving forward now into the deliberation. You know, we've seen the prosecution. We've seen now the defense. Now the leaders deliberate. They've been agitated. They're they're greatly annoyed. They've, They've now been challenged. They've probably been offended. But even though they were adamantly against this movement of Jesus, they can't deny the validity of the miracle. Look at verse 16. A notable sign has been performed through them. And it's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. They can't deny the miracle, but then they're also challenged by the message behind the miracle. It's disrupting. It's it's disrupting their status quo, their power, their their sense of control. And they refuse to accept the message for themselves, and they want to contain it. If we look closely at their dialogue here in the deliberation, we see that there's actually an intellectual issue at hand. They have certain presuppositions about the resurrection that they just don't want to let go of. But then if we look closely, we, we see there's also an emotional issue at hand. Their agitation, it's a barrier clouding their judgment. The way people respond to faith is never just intellectual. The heart is always involved. In this story, all the evidence is pointing to Jesus. They couldn't deny the miracle, but they didn't want to follow where the miracle led. Because they wanted to hold on to their own sense of control, their own sense of power in the world. But in doing so, they set themselves against God. We can respond like the leaders to the offense of the challenge of Jesus, can't we? For some of you, you might not like the message of Jesus. You might not like the name of Jesus. But you can't deny that for some of the Christians you know, their following Jesus seems to have a very positive impact on their lives. But you want to deny the source of the transformation. And so you say... Look, religion has its place in the sociological realities of the world. It provides nice structures and rhythms and patterns and community. But that is to deny Christians what they say is the source of their power, the Holy Spirit. It's a presupposition you hold. And so whatever ideas you hold that get in the way of the resurrection, whatever negative emotions you have towards Jesus, whatever it is, Don't let that cloud your judgment about asking the question, who is Jesus? Look to the evidence. See where it leads. Ask the questions you need to ask. But don't use asking questions as a way of guarding your heart so that you never have to address your own heart. Because if, if the resurrection is true, it changes everything. You want to grapple with that because if you deny the resurrection, you're actually setting yourself in opposition to God. So once again, back to the trial. We move now out of the deliberation and they deliver their verdict. Verse 17. The leaders agree, in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn the apostles to speak no more to anyone in this name. Does that sound familiar? Don't speak anymore in this name. Just keep your beliefs to yourself. You can have your beliefs, just just don't push them on anybody. Essentially, if we put it crassly, they're telling the apostles to shut up. That's what they want. They just want them to shut up about Jesus. 
And I love Peter and John's response. Verse 19 through 20. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. It's just this resounding and unified no. They, they can't help but speak about what they've seen and heard. And if they were going to stop talking about Jesus, what they would actually be doing would be setting themselves against the Holy Spirit. Because you see, the Holy Spirit is at work in their lives, not just transforming character, but empowering their witness. God sent the Spirit to be a witness through his people to the world. And so to say that we won't witness is actually to deny who the Holy Spirit is. It would actually be to set themselves in opposition to how God wants to work through them. So they're not going to try to please man. They're going to try to please God. If you think about it, to try to shut up the Holy Spirit, it's like trying to capture wind in a jar with a lid. Like This is just a misplaced effort. What we also see in this text is that Peter and John, their one aim is pleasing God. And this is the depths of their character transformation, isn't it? They're no longer concerned about their lives. They're concerned about this great news of Jesus. So if we, if we step back for a second, if we look at um, the Holy Spirit's role in, the, in this trial, there are a few implications for us. You might look at this and be like, I just, I could never be like these guys. Not their character, not their words. I, I could never do it. And the first thing that we should look at and that should comfort us is that Jesus was the true witness to the truth. And he never compromised, not in his character and not in his words. He never kept the truth to himself. Not once. He, he only witnessed to what he had seen he would, he would say things like, I only say what the Father tells me to say. I only do what the Father tells me to do. He, he was so concerned about just pleasing God that he was faithful all the way to the cross. He, had, he, he came to say, look, I have seen God and I know God and I am God. And then he gives us the promise that those who believe in him will receive the Holy Spirit, will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Which is the other implication, isn't it? Jesus dwells in us by the Spirit. That character that we feel like we can't attain, that, that perfect character of Christ, his perfect witness, that's available to us through his, his Spirit. And you might look at this and then you're, you're asking, well, how do I know if I have the filling of the Holy Spirit? Because I think sometimes we, we kind of think we're going to have some sort of like Holy Spirit radar Right? Like some sort of feeling, some sort of tangible, uh, tangible experience. And, and sometimes that will happen, but I would go as far to say that that is not the normative encounter of God's Spirit. Like in this text, it is not like Peter is just glowing and shooting out Holy Spirit beams. Like he is still Peter. He's still very ordinary. He's still human. And this radical transformation is taking place, but it's taking place within reality. And so a simple way to, to figure out, like, am I filled with the Spirit? Just ask some questions. Ask this. Is my life looking more and more like Christ's? 
Do I love more like Jesus? Um, Ask, am I coming to a greater understanding of God's love for me? Because the scriptures promise that the Holy Spirit will pour in God's love for me. Ask, uh, what is your ultimate goal in life? For Peter and John, like they, they were only concerned about pleasing God, giving him glory. Like, is that your one desire? Or is at the very least that desire growing in you? Because the scriptures talk about gifts and miracles, and they are good things, but they are not the things that happen every day. The way by which we are going to engage the Spirit is going to be in the slow, steady walk of obedience where the Spirit continues to dwell in us and make us into the likeness of Christ. And I would even say that we can't fully understand how the Spirit is moving in our lives by ourselves. We need a community. We need people who say, this is how I see God's work in your life. This is the part that's noticeable. This is the part where I can see Jesus in you. And then there's this whole witness part, isn't there? Another implication, the witness. And uh, what this text shows us is that our witness in the world does not rely upon our own power and is not inhibited by our own weakness. Right? We see true witness is both the transformation of our character and talking about Jesus. But in the text, both of these realities are a product of the Holy Spirit. The power, the transformation, the witness, the boldness It's not from ourselves, it's from God. And I think there's some of us, we're thinking like, I'm just too far gone, I could never change. Like that's some of us here. And there's others of us here like, man, whatever I need to change in my life, like I can get the discipline down, I can get the plan, I can put in the effort, I can bring about this change in my life. But look at at Peter in in his, his life story. He experiences complete reversal, going from, a denier and betrayer to this man with boldness only wanting to please God. It's a radical transformation um, that wasn't brought about by his efforts. He's not so far gone that God can't meet him and use him, but he's not so strong that he can somehow bring about the character of Christ in his life. Change, you see, is not about our power or our weakness. When we make change about our power or our weakness, we're actually navel-gazing. We are looking to ourselves. It's all about us. Change comes through Christ dwelling in us by the power of his spirit, by him continually renewing us. I think this is why Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If you see the righteousness in Jesus, if you see who he was and what he did, and you think, I can't live up to that, That is a good thing. But simultaneously, if you're hungry for that, if you recognize the lack and you recognize your thirst for that, that is a good thing. Because what it does is it breeds dependence. It breeds prayer. It breeds us asking, come Lord Jesus. Transform us. But then there's some of us here, you want to be like Jesus. Like you're all about this character transformation, but you say Leave the witnessing thing alone. Like, I don't want to do that. And maybe it's, um, maybe it's a fear. Like you don't want to be that belligerent Christian who in the way they talk about Jesus actually misrepresent his character. Or maybe you're, you're sort of willing to talk about Jesus but you feel like you haven't read enough books or you don't have enough training or it's, you know, the, 
It's the work of those professional guys who wear the funny things on their neck. Like, you have these reasons, and some of them are valid. Right? Like, we want to witness to Christ in a way that represents him well. Um, it might be good to read some books. It, it might be good to go through some training. Um, there are probably some people in this room who are gifted in evangelism in ways that all of us uh, might not ever achieve, but that doesn't take any of us off of the hook of having to witness to Jesus. You see, what we see in this story is that God uses Peter, an uneducated, common man who was with Jesus for three years but didn't understand very much of Jesus' message at all. That Jesus meets Peter, he dwells in Peter, he works through Peter, but he also works with Peter. That our witness in the world isn't based off of our education or training, but it is based upon our dependence on the Holy Spirit to use our story to use what God has written in your life for the sake of others. You know, people, uh, they quote St. Francis of Assisi, right? Preach the gospel always and when necessary, use words. It's beautiful. What they usually don't know is that St. Francis used a lot of words. A lot of words. And the other, the other side of the coin is, I have yet to meet someone who is so transformed in their character, someone that is, is so holy, that people just like fall down and confess like Jesus is Lord. I don't know what it is about you. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you believe. Jesus is Lord. You see, Jesus is concerned about the transformation of our character and the transformation of our words. They go hand in hand. That's the spirit working in and through us. And so maybe when it comes to our witness, if we have reservations about sharing Christ with the world, maybe the best thing to do is start just simply by asking. Asking God to change your desires. Asking God to give you that boldness. Asking God to make you a witness in your existing spheres of influence. Lastly, I want to remind us all, like Jesus promises, it's a promise that he will send his spirit to those who believe in him. And he's not stingy with the Holy Spirit. I want to end with Christ's words. It was Jesus who taught us If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him?